Welcome to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Each and every podcast, hosts Mike Niemer and Greg Frank will bring you energy experts to help you better understand the renewable and sustainability space. Education is important to us because it's important to you, the listener. Now here's Mike Niemer and Greg Frank. And we welcome you into episode 139 of the Green Insider, powered by eRenewable alongside Mike Niemer. I am Greg Frank as we get ready to welcome on Matt Rogers to the show. He is the president of the Commodity Weather Group, kind enough to take a few minutes out of his week to chat with us. So without further ado, let's get to him right now. Matt, thanks a lot for your time. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. How are you guys doing? Yeah, doing pretty well here. And obviously, we want to talk to you because it's pretty hot where we are in Houston. Yeah. I think it's pretty hot where everybody is. Uh, what can you say about just what you've seen with uh, this summer? Obviously, it feels like wherever you are in the country, you're uh, kind of getting used to hot weather. Yeah, it's been it's been really hot. We've had a kind of a roving heat ridge around the country. So uh, some areas get breaks at times, like we do here on the East Coast, but some areas like you you all in Texas are not getting much in the way of any breaks. Uh, very, very impressive situation. So it, it ends up being hotter. It's tracking hotter than what we expected overall for the summer. So we're really, we're, we're cranking toward maybe a top three or even top a solid uh, hot summer here. So we'll be tracking that really closely over the next three weeks here to close out August. But it's really, it's really up there in, in, in the uh, rankings at this point. And let's just back up for a minute. And I want to allow you also just some time to explain a little bit about your background and yeah. how you ended up uh, getting to where you're at now with the Commodity Weather Group. Yeah, certainly. I, I went to school for meteorology at Penn State University. I graduated in 1994. And uh, at that time, I my thought was I was going to join the National Weather Service at that point. But uh, thanks to, to Newt, Gang, Newt Gingrich at the time, uh, the, the federal government was shut down. There was a big budget battle and they weren't hiring weather folks at the National Weather Service. The government just wasn't hiring at that window, that time frame. So I ended up finding a job uh, with a commodity group in Rockville, Maryland. They were mainly doing agriculture in those days, but it was 1994. So natural gas had just deregulated. And uh, a lot of those ag traders were starting to migrate over to the energy side. And so I started doing energy weather forecasting in 94, 95, uh, one of the first exciting times was the uh, uh, Hurricane Opal in the Gulf of Mexico, I think it was 95. And uh, so I've been doing energy support ever since that point, um, both for gas and power, um, weather drills a little bit as well. So it's been been quite a roller coaster after all these years. But uh, uh, yeah, that's that's how I got started there. And then we started our own company in 2009. Uh, a bunch of us uh, broke away to start that. That was very focused on both energy and agriculture. And uh, so we, we've, um, we uh, started that office in Bethesda in 2009, and uh, we've got uh, 15 folks on our team now. 14 of the 15 are meteorologists, uh, and uh, so it's uh, it's 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 fun to because commodities are a constant challenge uh, when you when you sprinkle in the weather. So uh, we're we're definitely keeping busy this summer. Certainly kept us busy. Well, Matt, welcome to the show. You know, you, you and I met at the NEMA conference over at uh, Lost Pines in uh, yeah. April, and uh, so I sat next to you at a breakfast table. And we got into a fascinating conversation about how 2015 used to be the hottest year. 16, it's 2016. 2016, yep. excuse yep. me. Yep. Yep. And then you explained to me that because of the more recent census, yeah, it changed the year. Tell the listeners about that conversation we had. Yeah, it's a fascinating issue. So prior to this past year, 2016 was our hottest summer on record for U.S. 
population weight at cooling degree days. So we just use that metric from an energy demand perspective. And um, it, that year, and this data goes back to about 1950. So it doesn't include the Dust Bowl days in the 1930s and things like that, because a lot of the reporting stations really started in the middle part of last century, a lot of the big airports that NOAA relies on. So the, the hottest summer was 2016. That was the last time we hit 100 degrees in Washington, DC, for example, very strong heat across the Midwest. But what happened was uh, the second hottest summer record was 2011, and that was a brutally hot summer for Texas in the south central U.S. and in parts of the deep south and even toward the southwest. When we shifted from 2010 census data to 2020 census data, we saw just enough people have moved into the south that now the population weighted component has adjusted. So uh, now in real terms and in real time terms, uh, 2011 and 2016 are virtually tied for the hottest summer record, but 2011 edged it out by like a decimal or so. So uh, it's really interesting. Uh, the southward shift in population uh, really put 2011 uh, on top, you know, when you compare it to the, uh, the original hottest summer there. Other interesting thing is that both those summers were La Nina summers like this year. So usually you find the La Nina summers tend to be our hottest for the U.S. Um, 1988 is a great example. I mentioned 1995 earlier. It was a really hot summer for Chicago. Uh, some of the late 90s, 98, 99, you had a really hot, terrible Texas summer in 98 as well. A lot of them were La Nina-based uh, summers uh, like this year. So uh, they, our odds kind of elevate when we get these type of, types of years. Well, speaking of this year, you know, we've been hot here, as Greg said, and every place else in the country looking at the map seems to be hot. How's that going to line up? Is it going to be part of the, the join the group of 2011 and 2016 or edge them out? It's really close right now. Uh, it's and, and it's interesting for Texas It's different than it is for the rest of the country, too. So for Texas, this has been the hottest summer on record so far uh, from June 1st, meteorological summer we call June 1st to August 31st. And it's the hottest summer on record so far uh, for Texas. However, it, August of 2011 was extremely severe. Almost every single daily ERCOT record was set in 2011. And uh, now we've had a relative pullback on temperatures in Texas. It's not quite as severe as it was a few weeks ago. You remember mid-July, you, you guys were really cooking. Um, we actually have days this week where Dallas will not hit 100 degrees. Um, in 2011, they were hitting them constantly through this month. So it looks like actually 2011 will overtake uh, this year and still retain the top spot, but this will be the second hottest summer record for Texas. Now for the U.S., uh, through yesterday, um, we are only one CDD ahead of 2011 uh, through yesterday. And with the latest information that we have this morning, uh, it looks like we may fall just slightly below 2011 and 2016 for this summer, but it really is going to come down to the last two weeks of August this time. Uh, so if it gets a little bit cooler for the Midwest East, we had a kind of a bearish move over the weekend. Uh, most of the models pulled back on cooling degree days over the U.S., so a bit of a bearish move in the gas markets over the weekend as well. And uh, so we might just slide just below those other two years. It's going to be a, it's going to be a, a horse race here to, to end the month. We're sitting in Houston, you know, we pay attention to the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. And as the summer has been hot here and it has started to cool down in temperature, I've also heard that the water temperature has cooled down some. Is that true? And uh, like, how much has it moved? Yeah, it's really interesting. The water temperatures aren't that impressive in the Gulf right now. There's a patch in the northeastern Gulf that's pretty warm, but across the southern and western Gulf, they're actually normal to a little bit cooler 
Um, and, and I say cooler, I don't mean to say it's cool because it's not. The waters are sufficiently hot for, for hurricane activity. Even if you cool it by a half degree or something like that, you're still going to be able to support tropical activity. It's just, it's just not boiling right now out there. It's really been interesting. The ridging, the heat ridging has been more focused over Texas and more toward the Rockies and Plains. It has not really, really set up shop over the golfer. Uh, southeastern U.S. as much. They have not seen as much of that heat. So it's, um, yeah, the Gulf isn't really all that super primed, I guess, but it's still sufficient for any activity that gets in there. There's also that thing we call the loop current, which is that area of warm water west of Florida and northeast of the Yucatan. That's what really fired up uh, the uh, Katrina story back in the day. And that's still there. It's pretty impressive. So it's all about tracking. If you get a storm to go right over that loop current, it makes a big difference in terms of heat content availability versus some of these other parts that go off. So uh, something to watch. So what degrees that it's lessened in the Gulf mm-hmm. is still not lessened enough to take us out of no yeah. problems, yeah. right? Exactly. Exactly. That's right. Yep. It, yeah. And- it's, it's not an amplifier, but it's, it's not a de-amplifier at this point either. So, but it's not enough to really, you know, um, to change that. Now I remember back in 2011, our whole state in Texas, we were in a bad drought. Yes. Now, again, we have droughts going on in Texas again. Drought versus drought, is there a difference between what we're witnessing now versus 11? Yes. Um, that 11 drought was more east-focused, um, and, and this one is a little bit more west and north-focused from a spatial perspective for the state of Texas. So as you've seen over the past week, you've been getting scattered thunderstorms breaking through a little bit in the, in the Houston area, not so much for San Antonio, Austin, or Dallas, but along the Gulf Coast, we've been seeing a little bit more. We really struggled to even do that in 2011. I was actually looking at the, the three hottest summers to date prior to this year for Texas, and there were three of them. It was 2011, 1980, and 1998. In two of those three years, in 1980 and 1998, you had a tropical system in August, mid to late August, that broke up the drought a little bit, made it a little bit uh, less severe. If you remember, um, 1980 was, um, I think it was Allen, I think it was that one, and that was a bad one for South Texas, and then 1998 was Tropical Storm Charlie uh, that came into Central South Texas as well, but it just started to break up the heat ridge a little bit, bring some rain in, So, uh, but in 2011, as you recall, it was nothing. There were no tropical events that made it into Texas, and it was a slow climb out of that drought through that next winter and into that next spring. We had to move, start moving toward El Nino again to start to wake that back up. It was a very long haul out of that one. So we'll have to watch the tropics really closely. Mid-August to mid-October, this this, um, eight-week window to really watch for getting some activity into the Gulf. Don't see anything right now. Still pretty quiet in terms of the Gulf activity. Matt, I wanted to deviate a little bit to more of the day-to-day and just operational stuff that you guys do at the Commodity Weather Group as the president. Just what can you tell us about the staff that you guys have and just some of your your goals and, and what you've accomplished? Oh, yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah. So we've um, uh, it's interesting. We've got four co-founders and all four of us um, do regular forecasting as well. We're all meteorologists and we're all involved in the morning forecast process. So uh, we all get up really early. That's the one thing about meteorologists. And uh, we have to have to get up uh, really early, get our markets, our, our reports out before the markets open. And um, and uh, so we uh, we have some of us, our folks are working on the energy side, some on the ag and some on both. And um, it's uh, uh, our, our goal with our customers is to give them as much information as possible, as efficiently and quickly as possible. 
Uh, so, in, and they can kind of control that flow of information as well. They can determine uh, how many reports they want to get from us, what kind of reports, whether it's uh, power reports in ERCOT, PJM, any of the other ISOs like California ISO, or whether they're more focused on the natural gas side or any of these certain different types of agriculture ones, the softs, um, cocoa, coffee, any, any of those ones that are quite volatile as well. So, um, so we do a lot of uh, uh, daily reports and everything. And so, you know, we're consulting for, um, you know, th over a thousand uh, end users that are involved in the commodity markets, uh, hundreds of companies, and it's a really diverse set of companies as well. It's, it's interesting. It always interests me how many companies have exposure, or at least they realize they have exposure to commodity risk. Um, and, it, and it's a lot more than, than uh, it used to be. And it's, it's been really interesting in that sense. And some of these companies you wouldn't have think to do that are starting to, you know, reach out and hire uh, industry people to kind of help them manage and hedge their energy risk or their food price risk and things like that. I guess the inflationary environment may be helping that a little bit, um, but, um, but it's, been, it, it's been an area of growth for us as well. Yeah, and you mentioned a lot of those companies. Just what can you say specifically about how wide-ranging your reach is in terms of uh, the different types of companies that are interested in what you guys do? Yeah, I guess um, the most traditional ones are the utilities and, and producers, and then, and then you've got the hedge funds and banks, and, uh, but then you have, you have uh, retail um, you know, it, this actual retail too, like, you know, some big box retail a little bit as well. And, um, and then you've got uh, international food companies. Some food companies are involved in energy as well. Uh, we have uh, customers um, in Europe and Asia and South America. And it's really interesting. It keeps us very busy. So a lot of our best new products and ideas come from our customers and the changes evolve. Uh, as the industry evolves, you know, the, the ex massive explosion in solar generation has been a big issue. It really, and that's, a, we were talking about 2011 earlier, and uh, that was like such a big issue. In 2011, we didn't have the amount of solar or wind generation that we have now. So there's a lot of, a lot of weather forecasting challenges trying to figure out if everything's going to be ready, you know, when you need it to be ready. We had that, that week in July there where, you know, wind generation just wasn't you know, keeping up with the demand side of the equation. And uh, so it kept us really busy. But uh, so we do a lot of real-time updates for customers as well as the, as the reports. And, uh, um, and, and we kind of have a, we also focus on a bit of an educational angle as well. We want our customers to understand a lot of the meteorological terms and things that we're working with and, and how we came about our forecast. So uh, we definitely try to avoid the whole black box thing. And we have a lot of educational material on our website to explain what a high pressure ridge is and, and you know, all the different things that we look at from teleconnections to blocking and, uh, and how, how our forecasts are uh, come together. So it's a uh, it's a, it can be a fire hose if they want it to be, and it, and it can be as, as, as quick and bottom line as they want it to be as well. So. Well, I've got two things. First, you kind of stole a little bit of my next question. Oh, no worries. I was wondering how uh, the growth of wind and solar has affected your all's company and your, the mm -hmm. jobs that you have to do. That was the first thing. And the other thing is, when you started in 94 after you got out of college, and that gas, you made accurate comment about it just becoming a futures contract and just starting yeah. to trade and agriculture has been around 150 years by then. So you see aggressive ag traders really knowing how to process what weather does. You've probably mm. seen a huge growth on what the nag gas traders, how they developed over the course of that first decade of their existence versus what the ags have been doing. How long do you think regarding the ags versus nag gas 
Did it take the nat gas market to catch up to what the agriculture people, how they were using the weather models for their trading? Uh, that's a good, that's a good, uh, that's, it's a good question. Um, it's really interesting because um, I felt like, um, so agriculture has some extreme volatility in the late eighties. And uh, there was some really, we had some really hot summers, like the summer of 88, that big mega drought that was over the Midwest. And a lot of ag traders would always remember that as like, they would say, is this 88? Is this 88? Sort of like when there's a hurricane going to Houston, it's like, is this Harvey? You know, is this our, you know, you have these memories of these things that can be really dramatic. And then ag kind of slowed down a little bit in the early nineties. It wasn't as, um, as uh, bullish of an upside potential, the prices came down. And so there wasn't as much volatility in the market at the time. Natural gas kind of presented an interesting opportunity for traders to get a lot more volatility uh, because it was relatively new and, and using it, like your, your question there, Michael, about the weather and using that, that weather uh, variability and ap- applying it to from an energy demand standpoint was really new. And there was a lot of uh, unknowns and uncertainty at the time. So it, it was a lot more volatile. The, it was a lot more uh, up and down volatility in the markets. It was a lot more, you know, we didn't have shale production back then. We didn't have as much supply. And so there was just, a, it just had this wild west feel to it. And something similar happened in the late 90s when they started to deregulate electricity as well. And you had the Enrons out there making these crazy you know, moves and you see this extreme volatility in the models. But um, so I think you know, ag had its heyday in the 70s and especially the 80s. Um, that was when the markets were extremely volatile and they stabilized in the 90s. And I feel like gas had its craziness in like the mid to late 90s and early 2000s. And, and I really feel like the, the end of the gas extreme volatility was like 2005, the Katrina timeframe. Ever since then, you know, we moved, um, you know, back into maybe some more recessionary conditions, but we really haven't been in, in the shale revolution, of course, and we really haven't seen that, that extreme level that we did back then. So um, it was an interesting transition time. And uh, so I felt like the, um, the gas volatility world really kind of peeled away those ag traders to something a little bit more exciting at the at that time frame. So it was interesting. Well, that's fair enough. So as you yeah. started with the uh, ags in seven, 1970s and 80s, and you had um, natural gas in 1990 to 2005, that's right when the wind and solar start picking up. Yeah. 2010, yeah. that volume starts increasing as we're seeing it ever increasing every year, oh, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So now, sure. so now you guys have a big role to play with regard to all the forecasting, whether it's, you know, uh, the wind, the solar, battery storage, you probably play a factor in every single one of those regarding the renewable market. So why don't you talk a little bit how your weather companies having to focus a little bit more on renewable now than you did 15 years ago? Yeah. And, and it's an, we do, and we, we do a lot of renewable forecasting for Europe, um, for um, uh, for the Western U.S. and Texas, especially. Texas is like, in my mind, Texas is like the Germany of, of the U.S. because it has so much wind generation going on now, and uh, and then now solar is getting into the mix too. So yeah, it's a very very complex uh, environment to try to figure it all out. Uh, one of the challenges we have, uh, it's easier on the demand side of the equation because. Uh, most of the de- demand is associated with these, the urban uh, airports and cities that we already track. So figuring out a demand center like Chicago or New York or Houston, it's easier because the, the reporting stations are right there where the people are. Uh, so it was much easier to, to actually correlate that 
to energy demand than it is on the other side of the equation, trying to figure out these wind generation forecasts because wind is distributed over large areas. And it's in areas that you don't usually have a lot of historical weather data for either. Uh, so trying to model that wind and figure out uh, how much generation you're gonna get, uh, it is very, very complicated and challenging. And, and solar generation is the same thing. So it's not concentrated at a point of highest demand. It's spread out over large areas. Um, we've, we're learning so many things about the challenges of these forecasts. Sometimes you get, if you put a wind farm upstream of another wind farm, you start to cannibalize the other one. So that what it was generating is not generating as much now because it's the wind's been disrupted upstream. Um, there's things from a solar standpoint. If, they, if you think about solar farms in the Southwest, if they have higher humidity, water droplets in the air, it doesn't generate as much solar generation as it would if it was a dry air mass. So the, where the location of the monsoon is, is very important, whether it's a very dry humidity or very high humidity, or think about particulates from smoke or any sort of dust storm that can also affect how much solar generation you're going to get out of each farm. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, external factors that are very challenging in trying to figure, um, figure out uh, how much generation you're going to get. I feel like uh, solar might be more difficult than wind at this time, um, but I, you know, wind was extremely difficult as well, and we're still working to get a better handle on it. As you mentioned, Mike, the numbers are changing all the time too. You're always increasing your capacity, uh, so you're always working with new numbers. Uh, we try to keep up by updating on a quarterly basis uh, with the new capacity information, and uh, that's uh, it's it's been amazing how it changes so much. Uh, over time. One of, the, one of the things that helped us in July was we didn't, the ERCOT grid didn't completely break because we had enough solar generation when we had that big wind shortfall. So they were able to work off of each other a little bit there uh, as well. Matt, I just wanted to ask one last question. Uh, I'm curious, uh, specific to some of the other stuff you do. Uh, I noticed you're, you do some freelance writing for the Washington Post. Oh, yeah. And um, I went to school for journalism, actually not that far from uh, Penn State uh, in Philly. I went to Temple. So, nice. um, you know, didn't really care for the Nittany Lions when I was there. But and we <laughs> did get them in football once. Uh, but no, I, I, remember, I just, yeah. yeah, I was just curious, uh, kind of what you, uh, what kind of writing you do uh, with the Washington Post, a lot of this stuff uh, that you get asked to, to share your, your thoughts on? Yeah, um, it's, it's been a great opportunity for me. When I was in high school, I was torn between wanting to be in meteorology, wanting to be a writer, like in journalism, and then and also wanting to have my own business because my father had his own business. So I, I, all three things I'd always wanted, but um, I gravitated towards meteorology, but I somehow managed to get all three of them back again. So I was very happy about that. I've been very lucky uh, in that sense. And I, uh, it turned out that uh, somebody I had worked with at my first company that I was at in, at Ursat in Rockville um, was part of the Capital Weather Gang before it got bought by the Washington Post. So I joined it like right before, I mean, it was like 2008 or seven, right before it got into the Washington Post. And uh, uh, so, but it was a really, really neat opportunity for me to uh, write a little bit about local weather and do updates on local weather for the, for the Mid-Atlantic area. And I write some feature pieces once in a while uh, as well. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, really, it's a really neat opportunity to, to be involved in that. And um, uh, it's, 
uh, it gives, keeps my foot grounded a little bit because as you all know, weather forecasting is very humbling and you're only as good as your last forecast. So uh, it's, uh, it's, it's always a challenge and you have to be realistic about the challenges. One, and one of the things we do in our company too is we give everybody our best forecast, what we think is going to happen. But then we do the, what if we're wrong? You know, if we're wrong, this is going to happen or this is going to happen. So they just have a whole sense of how to hedge the situation. And I think that's helpful as well. Just kind of be cognizant uh, of the fact that we're going to make errors is going to be a challenge. It's a challenging field for sure. Well, Matt, before we let you go, we just were curious. I, I know we mentioned in the beginning there kind of our, the mutual connection with NEMA and uh, Tim Berrigan, uh, wondering yeah. if you were going to be present at the NEMA con- conference in October. No, I'm going to have to miss this one. I'm traveling in, uh, in October already, but uh, hopefully I'll catch everybody at the next one in the spring. So there's a really, really fun events. I really enjoy them. All right. Well, that's about all I got, Mike. Any final words? Uh, no, I'll tell you what. Uh, you did not disappoint. You came with information I was hoping you'd bring. Okay. And, uh, so, uh, <laughs> it was good talking to you, Mike. Yeah. No, it was really good talking to you, and I appreciated it. And uh, I look forward to seeing you the next time round at, at NEMA that you're at. Or, you know, there's so many doggone conferences anymore. We make cross paths at another one. You never I know. know. Yep, yep, we might. Yep. That'll do it for episode 139 of the Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. For Mike Beamer, I'm Greg Frank. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast, wherever you may get your podcast from. Leave us a five-star rating. Because as the saying goes, you learn something new every day. And we were responsible for today's lesson. Again, for Mike Beamer, I'm Greg Frank. That'll wrap things up for episode 139 of the Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Everyone, enjoy the rest of your day.